Let's turn our attention to the gospel according to Isaiah. We're in the book of Isaiah. We'll be uh, finishing up in a couple of weeks, at least through the next section of chapter 55, and jumping into the book of Colossians, The Sufficiency and Supremacy of Christ. Great book, New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul. Read it uh, multiple times if you can as your preparation for the study of that book. But right now we're in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 12. Next week we'll pick up the rest of 52 and all of 53. And I was talking to somebody this morning. In many ways it's the pinnacle, it's the diamond really of of the book of Isaiah. We're looking at the work of, of the servant of the Lord as he suffers and dies as our substitute. A substitute for sinners, that's next week. Just really looking into the atonal work the atonement work of Jesus, so next week. But we'll see that again. Uh, we'll see that today as well, for the whole book is about Jesus. Just a real quick recap. Isaiah, he's a prophet. He's been uh, faithfully delivering God's word to God's people throughout the 8th century B.C. He's not only warned them of the consequences of their rebellion, but has been faithfully declaring the grace and the mercy of God, even in the midst of divine discipline that God would bring upon his people. By this time, the northern kingdom, Israel, known as Ephraim, by the sovereign hand of God, has been conquered and destroyed by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom, Judah, was spared, but they were told, you're next. Due to their repent, uh, excuse me, rebellion and unrepentant hearts, they too will be conquered. And that happens as the Babylonian empire is raised up and conquers Jerusalem and Judah and sending them into exile for 70 years. But God is gracious and God is merciful and he promises that he will intervene and set them free and allow them to go back to Judah, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls. That's what we've been studying in uh, Monday nights with the book of Nehemiah. All this foretold by Isaiah in the 8th century so that when the people of God are in exile in the 6th century, they have his scroll and they can see the word of God and the sovereignty of God unfolding and they, could, they would be then encouraged to trust him. <laughs> to trust him and not, not run to and not trust their idols, their lifeless idols and their useless idols that really can't do anything for them. And that's what God did. God raised up, we know, king uh, from Persia, his name is Cyrus. He delivered the, ba- uh, uh, he, they conquered Babylon. And then his first year, King Cyrus said to the people of God, go back to Jerusalem. You're free to go. We're releasing you. You can go back and you can start building your temple and you can start building your land, uh, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. But just like that, our exile that we'll see, that we saw being released from Babylon, just like the exile that was done century years earlier when God's people were delivered from the Egyptians, both those are pointing to a greater exile, and you need to know that. A greater redemption, a greater release from captivity, and the point of all that is the redemption and the releasing of captivity from sin and death that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. It is easy to see through these chapters I've been reading, uh, we're, we're in chapter 52, that it's not only about the redemption of Babylon. Look with me in chapter 51. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see in verse 6. You see, it's not just Babylon. He's pointing something better and greater. Lift up your eyes, Isaiah says, to the heavens, and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. 
My righteousness will never be dismayed. We see this renewal. You see this redemption of all things coupled with everlasting joy will be the reality of God's people due to the suffering servant of the Lord. We'll see that next week. And the king, the king, the promised king, chapters 1 through 39 spoke about a king. Chapters 40 through 55 speaks about the servant of the Lord. Both of them are Jesus. He'll restore and renew all things. And up to now, as we've been started with the second section in verse 40, we'll end in verse 55, there's just been this buildup week after week, a buildup, an anticipation of God's people receiving their salvation. That's where we're at. And we'll see how that all takes place with Christ next week. But today, there's this long anticipation of the release of these exiles uh, from captivity and the reception of, of their salvation that began way back in chapter 41, chapter 49 as well. And now this morning, as we look at chapter 52, it reaches its resolution in which deliverance is described to God's people as imminent. God is calling on his children to awake Prepare themselves for this coming salvation. I hope, I hope you're awake this morning. Prepare yourself for the coming of salvation. If you have your Bibles open again to chapter 51, notice in verse 9. Chapter 51, verse 9. It says, awake, awake. Wake up. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the old days. God's people is calling out to God for him to awake and... and, and uh, you, we know what you're going to do in the future. We know what you've done in the past. But we're looking at salvation today. That's in verse 9. And then look down at verse 17. You see the same thing. God says, no, you wake yourself up. Wake yourself. Stand up, Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. God says, look, you wake up. And he goes on to say in verse 22, that they are no longer going to be drinking of the cup of punishment. But now Jerusalem has been called to respond to the salvation that God has provided. In fact, verse 22 of chapter 51 says this. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. I will, verse 23, put it in the hands of your tormentors. I'm going to take the judgment you deserve for your sin, and I am going to take it from you, give it to you no more, and turn it on those who oppress you. That's what he's saying. So awake, we saw that. God, awaken, please save us. God says, no, you awake, stand up, the bowl of wrath that you are to drink, you're not going to drink anymore. And now look at chapter 52, verse 1. We see the same thing. Awake, awake. It's not simply just you're not going to have judgment anymore. Now, in Isaiah 52, it is there to awaken and put on glorious garments. That's where we're at. So three things we'll see this morning. First, we'll see in verses 1 through 6, they are being purchased without money. This is an announcement of good news. That's the title. Purchased without money, proclaimed without hindrance. That is the good news. And then protected, sharing the good news without fear. That's our outline for today. So let's look at verses 1 through 6 as I read from you the infallible, authoritative, inspired word of God. Chapter 52, verses 1 through 6 of Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. 
Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughters of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord. Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, verse 6, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Notice this first part of this section, Awake, Awake, how close the wording is from chapter 51, verse 9, where God's people are calling on him to awake, for his strength to come, for his deliverance to to come to them. And now he reminds them again that the problem has never been him or his desire to deliver them. It it has been on them to to trust him. Are, are Are God's people willing to trust him in the midst of their hardship and their exile. It is not them who must awake, but it is them that who must awake. Verse, verse one, two imperatives. Not him, they need the strength. And the people of Zion need to stir themselves to action. And what I believe, what Isaiah is saying to the people here is that it is a call of God to trust in God's promises. She must, by faith, put on her beautiful garments that have been given to her, provided for her, by her God. In other words, listen Israel, listen to God's people, stop blaming God for your trouble. Stop blaming God for your exile. Stop fearing man. We see that all over scripture as we got to this point. Stop believing that your situation is hopeless. Actually, have faith in God. The kind of joyful faith and anticipation that you have, must have in God for God to release his power, his, his, his deliverance for you. There's something they're called to do. God is saying, God is not saying, and I don't think you can find in Scripture, that you have the strength within yourself. What he's saying is, you have the strength to lay hold on the promises of God, to look to God for your strength. Way back in chapter 12 of Isaiah, he said, one day the people will confess, the Lord is my strength and my song. There's no question about that. The people know where God, where the strength comes from, it's from God. But they are to have faith in God. Chapter 54, verse 24. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. God is saying, trust me. It reminds me of a story as I was studying this week. When Jesus was, uh, uh, has gotten to, 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 to the tomb of Lazarus. And he's there at the tomb and he tells them to take away the stone. If you remember the story. Lazarus has been dead and he comes and says, take away the stone. And Lazarus' sister, Martha, says to the Lord, by this time, Lord, there will be an odor, or King James, he stinketh, depending on your translation. For he's been dead for four days. He's decomposing. And Jesus says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Sometimes when we are in hard times, time when we are in difficult circumstances we find ourselves we find the call of God on our lives I should say that he is to reveal he will reveal himself but our 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 responsibility is first to believe 
And when we believe and we trust him, we say, I'm, I'm trusting you now. Then God will reveal himself. Then God will reveal his power. The people of God here have been beat up, man. They've been captured. The city's destroyed, all, all due to their sin and their rebellion. They are far away from putting on beautiful garments. They're far from not being defiled by things that are unclean or, or from having the uncircumcised having their way with them, coming into the city and destroying them. Zion has been desecrated. Unclean persons have come into their midst. They corrupted the worship of the one true God. But now God is saying by faith, put on your clean garments. Put on your clean garments. Be set apart unto the Lord, a place which there is no uncleanness will never enter into her again. That could only happen by faith, not by their own doing. Here again, we see Israel's problem is more than just Babylon. If they are to be the people who are going to live in a holy city, something must happen to cure them of their rebellion. Something must take place for them to be cleaned. It's a call to stop living in the past. It's a call to walk by faith, trusting in the Lord, trusting in his victory, trusting in his deliverance. Look at the four imperatives here in verse two. God says to them, listen, I want you to shake yourself up from the dust. Shake off the dust, arise. And then he says, be seated. Now, just so you know, that what he means by that is not like stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. What he means is that get out from the dirt from being prostrated on the floor in slavery, broken and, 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 and shamed. Get up off the ground. Sit on a throne. Sit on a place. You're free now. And loosen, he says, open the bonds around the neck. Jerusalem is to, to lift the dust off their, off their body, shake it off them, rise up from the ground, and, and, and really be freed from any, any aspect of disgrace, from slavery to honor, from, from captivity to freedom. Beautiful picture, really. It, it, it's a beautiful picture of restoration. Her deliverance will be because God has broken the bonds. They've been loosened. Back in those days when uh, armies would go into and, and, and capture cities or, or other nations, they would take prisoners and they would tie ropes or chains from neck to neck to neck to neck to neck as they carried the, 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 the men off as, uh, in, into captivity. But now she's been freed. She's no longer a, a hapless victim, hindered by the restrictions of her captors. She must remove the chains. We cannot break the chains. God can do that. But when the chains have been broken, they have to be removed. He's calling on Israel, the Judeans, to buy faith. You know, sometimes, unfortunately, some people get comfortable in the familiarity of bondage. It's what they know. The hardships, the difficulties, the sin is what they know. And God said, no, I, I have broken the chains. Take them off. We see the sovereignty of God, his power, his authority. And then we see the human responsibility that we have. They're side by side throughout scripture. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. And yet man is responsible to step out in faith and trust the Lord. It's by his gift of grace. Verse three, 
Thus says the Lord. Look at the redemption God promises. This is how it's going to happen. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. That's the past. You were sold for nothing. And you shall be what? Redeemed without money. All right? So there's a, there's a past uh, that was sold. And there's this present redemption that is coming. And what Isaiah is saying is when, when you went into captivity, when your enemies came, it's not like God had to pay them to, to, to win you back. There was no sale, no change of ownership. God didn't sell his people down the river. And therefore, the people of Israel needed not to be redeemed with money. The Lord owned them. They belonged to him. They were in covenant relationship with them. And Isaiah makes it clear that the God is the sovereign, over and over, sovereign owner of his people if you remember, we saw that in chapter 50, verse 1. There's nothing that God owes. God doesn't owe anyone anything. And what is interesting, though, here is the term redemption or redeemed uh, in verse 3 usually implies payment. You're redeemed. You're buying something back. The language hints of, of, of a deliverance somehow, some way, but it involves a price or cost of something. Yet it says here they're redeemed yet without money. And in verse 4, God is described as, we saw this before, as the Adonai Yahweh, the sovereign one. The God of personal, uh, the personal God and covenant God is the one who is speaking, reminding them how they once went down to Egypt on their own. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. They went down to Egypt on their own. And then they became slaves. And then later they also became slaves when the Assyrian nation took them captive against their will. That's what he's talking about. Egypt is sojourned there. You went there first and Assyrians oppressed you. And what, what Isaiah is saying is, listen, God can set you free whether you went on your own and became slaves or they came and conquered you and you became slave. God still is your redeemer. As God reflects like, what have I here? That's an interesting uh, uh, statement there in verse 5. Now, therefore, what have I here? What he means is, you know, what is to be done in this situation? God's speaking out loud to his people. What am I going to do with this situation? <laughs> Israel's in captivity. It wasn't because God gave them up in a sense of being forced to. It was part of his sovereign plan. And it says that the Israel leaders wailed because of the shame of their defeat and captivity. And the enemies held God's name in contempt. You see that in verse 5? So as the watching world and all their idols see God's people who they claim are, is their God, they're in covenant relationship with them, as they see God's people head into captivity, they're saying, where is your God? <laughs> he is just as useless as our idols. Have you ever had that happen to you? Where you're trusting in the Lord, you know God is going to answer your prayers, you don't know what they are, and you trust whatever sovereign, providential thing that comes from God. And people around us who don't trust in the Lord, who don't know the Lord, say, yeah, look at you trusting in God. And as we say, you know what, we're trusting in God. No matter what the circumstances come, no matter what comes my way, I will trust in the Lord. And that's what God's people are told to do. God wasn't forced into anything. He says there's going to come a time in conclusion of all that when the day will come. Look at uh, ver uh, verse 6. In that day, in that day, a future time, God would act decisively for his people. He'll vindicate his name. He'll accomplish everything he's promised to do in his timing, not ours. 
We've talked about that before. Timing is, is hard for us. We want God to act now. We want things to change now. We want to see, uh, uh, you know, the tables turned now. And God says, no, it's my time. I'll show up. And when I show up, there'll be no question who God is. There'll be no question who the sovereign one is. There'll be no, there'll be no question about his care and concern for his people. In fact, God's self-revelation is showing himself as the true redeemer. So as you read this and you see all that God is doing and the salvation that is being prepared, you've got to ask the question, how can he do all this? How can a rebellious, unclean people put on beautiful garments, be redeemed yet without money? How does that happen? We'll see greater next week, but let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. The Apostle Peter writes to a dispersed people, people under exile that have been dispersed because of persecution. That's what 1 Peter is all about. He says this to the children of God. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you, that's God, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing, know this, that you were ransomed, redeemed, ransomed from the feudal feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of what? Christ like the lamb without blemish or spot. Silver and gold, no. Money, no. Nothing can ransom us back from slavery to sin and death but the blood of Christ. And like Assyria, uh, Babylon, and Satan's kingdom, they have no real claim on God's people. We've been ransomed, the price has been paid, and we have been set free. Now, there was an old teaching back in the day, I think in the third or fourth century, called the ransom theory. And the ransom theory by a man named Origen taught that the price that Jesus paid in his ransom was paid to Satan. Because of our sin, it needed to be satisfied, the debt needed to be freed, a debt needed to be paid, and we were set free. It's called the ransom theory. It's wrong, just in case you're wondering. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 tells us a very different story. Paul says, listen, everyone, children of God, walk in love as Christ loved us and as Christ gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice. That's the redemption. That's the price. Fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How can a holy God be reconciled with law violators? If God was going to forgive sinners, he had to going to remove judgment and and deliver us from Eternal damnation, he has to be satisfied. He's a holy God. And God has declared and and has made it a way and has determined that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross would, would satisfy him and would satisfy his divine justice. We see that in Romans. We see that all over Scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans says. And are justified, made right, forgiven and and imputed righteousness. They are justified, how? By grace, as a gift, 
through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice, adverting the wrath away from the people and put on Jesus. That's what propitiation means. To receive by faith. Then he says this, very important. This was to show God's righteousness, his justice, has to be satisfied. He's a holy God. He doesn't embrace sin. It says because in the forbearance, or divine forbearance, he passed over sins to show his righteousness at the present time. Right? Jesus died for sins of both the Old and the New Testament. All sin was laid on Jesus so that he might be just. He's the one who is holy, never accepts sins, and be the one who's the justifier. He will justify those who have faith in Christ. Now, this is what it's saying. Now, follow me, please. Very important. God himself justifies. God is just. God justifies. God himself justifies. God himself redeems. God himself satisfies his own holy justice. We can't do it. God's righteousness, his just holiness is vindicated, and therefore he is both the just The Holy One, He's God, and the justifier for those who have faith. So the problem of how a holy God can receive into His presence those who are by nature unholy, unclean, is by Christ, who who lived that perfect life, who died as a substitute for sin, as our ransom, He pays the debt that we owe in our place. That's why Hebrews 10, going back to the temple of the Old Testament, says priests go in there every day. They stand daily. They're always working. They're always providing sacrifices, repeating the same sacrifices every day, which could never take away sins. But Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice. And what did it say? What did he do? He sat down. Sacrifice is over. Because Jesus is both God and man, the shedding of his blood, the redemption he's provided, justifies us. We've been cleansed, we've been washed, we've been made right with God. The cross is the self-substitution of God. Purchased without money, through the blood of Christ. Look at verses 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains, the word of God says, are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, verse 8, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and what? Has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel be your rear guard. So God calls people to action, to have faith, to trust him. And he says, I'm going to come, I'm going to reign. Look what it says in verse 7. Your God reigns. His redeemed people is going to have a time of, of, of peace and joy as God reigns over them. 
And look, look, what, look what me in verse 7. Look at how it begins. It begins with a messenger. <laughs> verse 7 and verse 8. A messenger of good news. A messenger of good news. He will arrive and be a, a beautiful sight to behold. Beautiful feet for those who bring good news. And the people are waiting that's the scene. People are waiting anxiously to hear what he would say. He will, he will what? Not only bring good news, he'll publish peace. He, he brings good news of happiness. See what it says? He publishes salvation. He shouts to Zion, your God reigns. Not a multiple message, but one message with multifaceted realities. God, God reigns and God will bring, uh, uh, brings peace. There's no more hostility between us and God because of our sin. The good news of eternal joy and happiness and salvation. All because God will reign. Where God reigns, there is joy, there is happiness, there is peace. And there is salvation. Now, the Hebrew word here in in our text uh, for um, good news. Its counterpart in the New Testament, the Greek, uh, Old Testament is Hebrew, New Testament is Greek is the word we get evangelon or you, you evangelon, meaning you good anglos messenger. Same word, good news, gospel, uh, both Old and New Testament, Hebrew and Greek, same word, okay? Now, what you need to know about that word is back in biblical days, uh, both Old and New Testament, there was messengers who would bring good news. In fact, you read in 2 Samuel chapter 18, in King David's day, uh, there was messengers who went back to tell news to King David. 2 Samuel chapter 18. It was also good news, a proclamation would go out and there would be messengers when the emperor of Rome, they had a baby, a baby boy, there was, a, there was an heir to the throne, there would be messengers, heralders of good news. Now remember, no email, no cell phones, no cars, all right, so they're heralding these good news that would go out from there, and it would be especially good news when you would be in a city and there was walls around the city for protection, and you heard that an oncoming army was coming to attack your city. You, as the as the king or the one in charge, would send a military uh, uh, people out to stop them, and there would be wars outside the city gates. Maybe, maybe miles and miles away. And the people in the city were locked down waiting. I want you to see this picture. Waiting to hear, how did it go? And there'd be watchmen, you see that in verse 8, on the, on the city walls. And they're waiting for a messenger to come back from the military general. Like, what's going on? As everyone's waiting. And all of a sudden, over the hill, they'll see someone running with news. And everyone's kind of like, what's it going to be? It was especially good news when it say, we won. The victory is ours. The oncoming armies were stopped. We've won the war. And depending on what the, this messenger would say, would have a very different uh, uh, meaning to the people, right? But when they came back with good news, the, the one running had a big smile on his face. He was filled with what? Joy. The, the military commander sent me back with good news. And everybody waiting in the city put on what? A smile. He's smiling. Something's good. There's no need to fear. There's no need to worry. The announcement of good news. Everyone's filled with joy. And then the people in the city would say, ah. Whew. 
And they would live their life that day and the next day and the next day. They would live their life moment by moment with the reality that the victory has been done. They're safe now. There's peace now. The threat is over. Good news. But if you were in that city and there was a dude running, maybe three of them, and they had a real serious look on their face, you'd meet them at the door. What's going on? We're getting beat up. Things aren't good. Well, that's not good. But that's, that's the message. Tell the king. Well, what are we going to do? All right, we need to lock these gates. Put that man over there. Put that, they're starting to give advice to people on what needs to be done because the oncoming army may be coming to the city. You see, there's a difference between good news being proclaimed and advice being given. Okay? Good news to be proclaimed and advice to be given. Good news will be received and responded with joy and the others we receive with advice that we responded with fear and worry. The gospel, family, is not advice. The gospel is good news. It's not recommendation of some kind of instruction that will help you overcome something that is coming at you. It is good news of something that has already been done for you. There's a difference. You can get advice. You can say, hey, Pastor, look, we're, gonna, we're going out to dinner. You got any places that you, you know, think that's advice? Hey, you know, I'm having this trouble in my life. That's advice. Hey, look, I, I can give you some advice. Do this, don't do that. You know, maybe, maybe this will help you. The gospel is good news, not advice. When someone gives you advice, they're giving you counsel. They're giving you ideas and thoughts and opinions about things that has not happened yet. A report, a good news, is a report of something that has already happened. It's done. You can't do anything about it. You can only respond to it. When you turn on the news and you see a house burned down in Florida, that's news. A shooting or someone maybe raising funds for someone and gathered a lot of money and gave a check to someone. That's news. That's not advice. They're not asking you for your opinion. Here's the thing. Every religion known to man and every philosophy known to man sends military advisors. If you want to achieve salvation, if you want to have a reconciled relationship with God, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. In the gospel, we send heralders, messengers, not advisors. The good news is a historical event that has been declared. It's already been done for you. It is your job now to respond by faith and believe what God has already done. Does that make sense, everyone? Everybody go like that. 1 Corinthians. Now I want to remind you, brothers, Paul writes, of the gospel, the good news. I preach to you as the announcement of what has taken place. I've received it. I'm standing in it. I've delivered to you of first importance what I've received. That Christ died for our sins. He died for the purpose of sin. He was buried. He was raised again. Not advice. Good news. He was raised again in accordance with the scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the 12. Good news. Sin requires payment. We've sinned against God. We can't pay it ourselves. God in Christ died 
for our sins. That's the announcement. Believe it. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord. Break forth together with singing, you waste place of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. And what has he done? He has redeemed Jerusalem. The reality of what God has done has these heralders and these people receiving the news with celebration. The Lord has won. The beginning of singing has gone on, or, or the singing has begun. The anticipation of salvation reached its climax, and now there's a call for the people to respond, and the reason is God has redeemed. It's sing for joy. Sing for joy. As the arm of the Lord, verse 10, the Lord has barred his holy arm, means rolled up his sleeves, before the eyes of all the nation, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God's arm is described as holy, perfect, and he wields his arm and he saves his people. And all the things that are wrong in this world become right. And you know what's so cool about this passage? It's not just Babylon, as we said. The Apostle Paul in chapter 10 of Romans picks up this Old Testament passage and points to the reality and the fulfillment of preaching the gospel. And he says this in chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are what? Sent. For it is written in Isaiah chapter 52... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And God takes the word of God, takes the gospel, takes you and me as messengers and heralders, and he takes that word preached. Youth, the Holy Spirit comes open our hearts and our minds to the beauty and the glory of salvation and and the work of Christ. And then he saves us and cleanses us and washes us as we repent and believe. (laughs) Purchased without money, proclaimed without hindrance, as the heralders are rejoicing. And finally, the last two verses, protected without fear. Verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Okay? Again, not just Babylon. Although it's in the backdrop, it it points to the example of, of literal bondage to sin and death. And history tells us that there was come a day when Cyrus does make that uh, decree and he sends the people out and now God's people are, by faith, trusting in his word. Think about this for a minute. You're in exile for 70 years. The king says, go back to your city that is completely ruined, burned to the ground. And you're like, I got family here. I'm 70 years we've been here. It takes an act of faith to get up and go. To believe what God has said And to go to a place you're not sure of. But God is calling them to depart. 
Depart from there. See that in verse 11. In fact, bear the vessels of the Lord. Know what that means? That means, well, if you read Ezra 1, when he releases them, he says, look, take back the vessels that, that we took from you, Nebuchadnezzar took from you. Take back the vessels that belong to your temple. As the Jews are released from bondage, from exile, as the Persian king sets them free, he says, here, here's all the stuff that we took, or the Babylonians took from the temple, and have it back. You need it for the worship of your God. And Cyrus sends all that stuff back with God's people. It was used for worship. So as the redeemed Judeans and they leave Babylon, they're commanded, take the stuff back, leave the defilement of sin, touch nothing that is unclean, which would what? Render them unfit for worship and for service. You see what God is telling his people? He's telling his people to leave the paganism of their nation. Leave the pollution of the world. Cleanse yourself in preparation of the worship of God. Paul tells young Timothy, the preacher, pastor, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful in the master of the house, ready for every good work. You see, this deliverance is is really an object lesson for the redemption that Christ has for all of us, even nature itself. And everyone in this room and everyone in all of creation who has ever lived is called on to respond to this, cry to depart, get out from there. And whatever bondage we find ourselves, the arm of the Lord is strong enough on our behalf. The enemy has been defeated. The prison doors have been opened. The necklace, the the chains around our neck have been broken. We need to take action. Cleanse ourselves from defilement. Notice how this text doesn't really say how that's going to happen. We'll see it next week, particularly. But just for now, it points to the defilement of sin and the cleansing work of Jesus. Let me read one more verse to you. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, homo logos, agree with God that this is sin. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. I love that because it's not about your faithfulness. It's not about your justice. God is faithful. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin defiles you, a sense of of dirty with guilt. It could even happen because of sins against you where you feel defiled. The cleansing blood of Jesus, listen, the cleansing blood of Jesus is sufficient for sins you have done and for the sins that have been done to you. The cleansing blood of Jesus is sufficient for sins you have done and sins that have been done to you. And God tells his people, these redeemed, cleansed people, you don't have to run. You don't have to leave in haste. Like you did in Egypt, in the middle of the night, you're out of there. No, not here. You don't need to run in haste. You need to go in flight. In other words, don't rush. The bondage has been broken. You don't have to run for your life. You'll be able to go back as I guard you, as I go before you, and I, what he, look what he says, says, I will be your rear guard. Back in the Exodus, remember, they left and they had a, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and then they had the pillar of cloud by fire. Here, here God is saying, look, I will show you. You'll depart. I'll be with you in front and behind you. I'll even, I'll even care for the stragglers that are coming up behind the rear guard. God himself is his escort as they leave joyfully singing of the salvation of their God. 
Now let me end this way. Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Thinking of the gospel. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Depart. Get out of there. Go. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you when? Always. Front and the back. I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. Now family, we've been called out of this world. This polluted world to serve the one and the true living God. We're called to make disciples by demonstrating the gospel, by loving people, and declaring it the good news of Christ. He lived the perfect life that we're required to do. We could never do and died the death we should have died. He dies in our place. He's our substitute. He sacrificed. He sheds his blood. He comforts us and he redeems us through the cross. And God's promise that he'll be with us. His presence and his power will always be with his messengers. In fact, he told the disciples after he was, uh, died, he was buried, he rose and ascended. But he said, listen, wait for the promise. You remember this? Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit that the Father's going to send in my name. Wait for him. And when he comes, he will empower you to be my witnesses, heralders, messengers, in Jerusalem, here in your own town, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And just like what God said to his people back in these days, we're called to declare the good news of the gospel, yet we are to maintain our calling to live separate from the polluted world. So here at King's Chapel is what we like to do. We like to talk about the gospel being preached, and we have to be careful that we don't want to do three things. We don't want to do two things, we want to do one thing. And that's, that's this, now listen carefully. We don't want to emulate the world. We're not called to emulate the world. We're not going to live like the world lives with, when there is no God. That's worldliness means to live as if there is no God. Everything we see is all that there is, right? God doesn't tell me what to do, I do whatever I want. We don't buy into the philosophies and, and values and success, success structures on how to get Meaning and purpose in his life from the world. We get it from the gospel. So don't emulate the world. Don't join in with the world philosophies. And we're not to escape the world either. It means that we don't just shut everyone off. Those people are sinners and, you know, we're not sinners. Like, just look in the mirror, but that's another story. Like, you know, I'm just escaping from the world. I want nothing to do with lost people. We don't emulate the world. We don't escape the world. What do we do? We engage the world for the gospel, for the cause of the gospel. For the work of Christ. So although we're called out of the world, out of its polluted and its worldly thinking, we're called into a relationship with God, and then we're called to engage the world for the furtherance of the gospel. That's what Jesus said in John 17. I gave them your word, Jesus is praying, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, right? Don't emulate the world. We're not going to follow the world's systems. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. That's escaping the world. We don't emulate the world. God, Jesus says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. We're in the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. So as the band comes up, you guys can come up. Now, family, listen, this is very important. We're called to live separate lives. I got it. We're not called to run away. We're called to live holy and set apart unto the Lord. 
But we're also called not to emulate the world, but we're also called to engage the world. You have friends, you have neighbors that need to hear the gospel, that need to see the love of Christ in your life, and then hear the words of Jesus or the word of, of Paul in 1 Corinthians that they're sinners in need of salvation. Now, I'm going to end and ask you guys this. How many people here, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do it today. How many people in this room right now, don't raise your hands yet, how many people have, have your sins have been forgiven, you've been reconciled to God, you'll not be spending an eternity in hell, but you'll be in the presence of the living God, redeemed, rescued, washed, and cleansed, and forgiven because... Someone, your family, your friend, your pastor, a radio or a TV, or someone shared the gospel with you and you gave your life to Christ. Just raise your hand. All right, so look around the room. Aren't you glad you, they did? <laughs> you don't have to, you get to. Everyone, everyone, raise your hand. You have me, somebody shared the gospel. Well, let's leave this place empowered by God going before us, and he's coming up behind us. Let's pray. Let's pray for people. Let's pray for opportunities. Let's make disciples who make disciples as Jesus has commanded us to to do. You don't have to, but you get to. You get to be the beautiful feet that brings good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Not only thank you for your word and thank you for the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you that he came as an atoning sacrifice who who bore our sin, who took what we deserve on the cross, on himself, rises from the dead and grants forgiveness to all who call upon the name of the Lord. But Father, we want to also thank you for the messengers and the heralders, Lord, that you sent into our lives, that shared the gospel with us, that showed us that God loves us through their actions and deeds and then was able to articulate the truth of the gospel with us. Where would we be? So Lord, help us not to see this as a burden, but as a blessing, that we have have the good news and we want to herald the good news. We're not giving advice. We're sharing the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, be with us, King's Chapel, Lord, as we go out from this place as missionaries, loving people and letting people know the good news of all that Christ has accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.